Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Robin Buller, your host. Today, we will be talking with Dr. Olga Borovaya, who is a visiting scholar at the Tauba Center for Jewish Studies at Stanford University. She will be talking with us about her book, The Beginnings of Ladino Literature, Moses Almosnino and His Readers. Olga, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me, Robin, in particular because, as you know, uh, Sephardic studies are really underrepresented everywhere. And I always think about it when I hear the theme music of this show, which is Klezmer. So I'm very happy to talk about Sephardic studies here. It's such a pleasure to have you. I completely agree. And that's part of the reason why I'm so looking forward to our discussion. Um, before we get into discussing, you know, Ladino literature and Almos Nino, I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what brought you to Sephardi studies. Yeah, I'd be glad to. So I have an MA in Romance, Languages and Literatures from Moscow State University. So when I got interested in Sephardim, in Ottoman Sephardim, I thought it would be a good idea to look at their literature. And very quickly, I realized that approaching it as most other literatures, like let's say French or English or German literature, and discuss its aesthetic aesthetic value and analyze the styles and the images and the effects is not going to be productive. Because uh, the Ladino or Judeo-Spanish speech community was very small. Uh, well, at the, at the end of the 19th century, it was probably uh, around quarter of a million. But really, most of, for most of its history, it was smaller. And given the period, most of the literacy was also very low. So this literature mm. did not, uh, you know, that we, we can't expect there to find their Joyce or Shakespeare or Moliere. It didn't happen that way. But it doesn't make this literature less valuable or less important. It's just that it's a window 
on the life of uh, Sephardic Jews in the Ottoman Empire. Well, obviously, any literary text or any text is a window on the given uh, literature, on the given culture. But, you know, when you read, let's say, Joyce, you don't read this book in search of facts, historical facts. And in Sephardic studies, as you also know, we have so few archival documents that every bit of information is extremely valuable wherever we find it. And I've been able to find a lot of useful, important information in Latino sources. Uh, just studying a masthead, the masthead of a newspaper gives us a lot of information. Uh, and that it's just not the price, it's the motto, it's, I mean, lots of things, the calendars it uses. Uh, but also really facts, historical facts, that quite recently I've been lucky enough to find a couple of important historical facts uh, in the Ladino text. But that's only one aspect. Of course, uh, because you see, Ladino literature uh, has been probably 95% it's a didactic literature. And that is why it's always important to understand who is teaching and what they want the audience to learn. And that is what we learn from the, mm. from the text. And that tells us a lot about this community. So when I looked at this, when I realized that, I also realized that in order to, re- to do a good job to understand Latino literature, for what it is, one really has to ask historical questions. You just can't avoid it, not that I wanted to. And I started asking historical questions <laughs> without being trained as a historian. And I think this is, in my opinion, that is the most productive way of approaching Latino literature. That is to say, with historical questions in mind and actually in the text itself. And so with that in mind, what brought you to study Moses Almos Nino in particular and to study his audience? Oh, yes, that's, that's of course, the key question. Well, first of all, I, uh, a friend gave me his book. Uh, so one book was, that was published in uh, Barcelona, uh, his Chronicles. It's called in Spanish, uh, this edition calls it uh, La Cronica de los Reyes Otomanos, that is to say, The Chronicle of Ottoman Kings. And I read this book, and I just loved it. And I read the introduction, and I learned that Moses and Muznino was very famous and very important. So I was sure I would find a lot of literature about him, dissertations, monographs, articles. But to my great amazement, I found only a couple of articles, and they were all written by linguists. Hmm. I was really shocked. I couldn't understand what, what the problem was. But I decided that no matter what, I was going to write about him sometime or translate his work. And in this book, I actually managed to do both because... Um, I have one of the texts, which I find the most interesting. Um, in, it's, um, I, put, I translate it into English, and uh, the readers may find, find it in the appendix. But that was my first approach. But then I started thinking why Almuznino was not included. And I started looking at the histories, uh, at the books on Latino literature produced in Spain. There are many books. And to my even... I was really astounded to find out that the 16th, that 16th century Latino literature is not considered Latino literature. And then I understood why. And I decided that I really have 
to fix this. I have to say why it is, explain why it is wrong and why 16th, 16th century literature also have to be also has to be uh, it's part of Latino literature. But there was a right. third consideration, which is it's a little complicated, but I find it, and it's probably very ambitious, but I find it extremely important. Um, so in the past 20 centuries, in the past 20 years, um, looking, uh, looking back, uh, we can say that now there is a school um, of, there is a Stanford school uh, of Sephardist, Stanford School in Sephardist Studies. Uh, it was founded, if we may use this big word, it was by Aaron, Aaron Rodrigue, um, who wrote foundational works on Sephardic history. And when I say Sephardi here, I always mean Ottoman Jews, Judeo-speaking Jews. And then right. he, he um, had, in the past 20 years, he had um, six students. One of them is still to write his dissertation, but we know he will. And he already had some um, of these scholars on the show. And usually talking about the school, one talks about a, a new method. Uh, we can't, I can't say there's a new method. But what happened is that this school totally, this group of people normalized uh, the field of Sephardic studies, which until then was actually sort of ethnic studies, quote unquote. Uh, all the scholars, uh, including Ernest Rick, work on the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, and as I said, there's no new method. But what is new is the application of uh, methods used by general historians, applying it to Sephardic history. This is something new. It hadn't been done before. So now it's just a regular field of history. And by the way, um, half of us are not even Sephardi. So it's, it's never self-referential. We're really interested in the history of Sephardi, uh, in, the, in, the, in Sephardi culture. So how is this related to Moses and Mosnino? Uh, Spain has, certainly has its own school, uh, of literary studies of uh, Latino, uh, the school that studies Latino literature. But they don't ask historical questions. They do a lot of useful things, but it's different from what is done in the United States in this Stanford school. And because it's such a new thing, normalization of Sephardic studies, many of us have to uh, deal with, we have to debunk myths or correct various misconceptions. And I felt very strongly that we also have to say something about the, Latin, the history of Latino literature, because I so much disagreed what my Spanish, with what my Spanish colleagues did. So I thought, since I'm the only uh, literary scholar in this, group of, in this group, I thought it's my obligation, it's my duty to chart the territory, to, to remap it. And I've never had the intention of writing a history of Latino literature, literature as a whole. But because in my first book, I dealt with the 19th, 20th century, I decided to go back to the 16th century and write about Moses and Musnino so that other scholars, I'm sure, will do a very good job writing the history of 
uh, Latino literature in other periods. So that is why Almuznino became so important for me. And for many years, I've been collecting, collecting materials so that at some point when I was done with my first book, I would be able to write a book about him and the beginnings of Latino literature. So studying Almos Nino and his contemporaries is sort of, you would say, a really important foundational step for understanding modern Ladino culture. Um, I think it's um, a step for understanding Ladino culture in general. And mm. uh, I think because, as I mentioned earlier, that Sephardi studies are um, underrepresented and people don't know enough. I felt that we need to say more about different things and to make our field, uh, again, more normal. And hopefully, hopefully, there will be other people who will not necessarily do history. They will do literature or sociology. So I sort of wanted to, to chart this big territory. Um, and so on that point of Sephardi studies being so underrepresented or underrepresented, you and I have been sort of throwing around this word Ladino. Some of our listeners might not be very familiar with, with what Ladino is. I wonder if you could give us a bit of background information on the history of Ladino as a language and you know how this vernacular developed. Yeah, I'm sorry, I should have started with it. First of all, Ladino, well, it's never too late. Ladino is the same thing as Judeo-Spanish. This is, um, this is um, an Iberian, uh, uh, in, uh, sorry, it's an Iberian Romance language, uh, which emerged in the 16th century, and its grammar is essentially that of Castilian Spanish in the 15th century, but its syntax has been heavily influenced by other languages, mainly by Hebrew and later in the 19th century by French. Hmm. And its vocabulary uh, has uh, a certain number of Hebrew words and Aramaic words, but not too many, actually. But it has many Turkish, Italian, Portuguese uh, sometimes Greek, sometimes Slavic words, depending on the territory. Mm. There are lots of debates about around Ladino, what it should be called, what Ladino was, and I don't want to get into this because it's so boring, really. But <laughs> it's your, your question. It is boring because so much has been written about. I've written about myself in my first book, so I'm not interested. Okay. But it's actually very important. But what is important is the history of Ladino when it emerged. So the main reason 16th century Latino literature is not considered Latino literature by my Spanish colleagues is that they believe that uh, Latino, or they call it today Spanish, uh, fully received, um, reached its more or less final shape in the 18th century. Therefore, everything written before does not count as Latino literature. Well, mm. that is a very strange idea, right? Because nobody starts, uh, you know, starts writing the history of um, Castilian literature from Cervantes. We start from El Cantar de Miocid, which is around uh, 12, it's 12th century, uh, 1200, year 1200. And it's not even Castilian. It's a different variety. And nobody questions this. So why would we wait? the language 
reaches its final shape, quote unquote, in order to right. start studying the literature produced in this language. So what these people say, they say it's actually an extension of Castilian literature, implying that let's um, scholars of Castilian literature study it, but that makes no sense. Well, this literature emerged outside the Iberian Peninsula. It was written by Jewish authors specifically for a Jewish audience. And we know this because it was written in uh, Hebrew characters. So Spanish scholars not interested in Sephardi um, culture may not even know it exists. And even if they do, why would they be interested? They may be interested, but it's really not part of their culture. So it's very strange uh, to assume that they should deal with that. But probably an even more important issue is that it's clear, I mean, sociological, it's obvious, that once uh, the Sephardi, uh, significant Sephardi population moves uh, to the Ottoman lands, it starts producing tanks. And from this moment on, the vernacular they use uh, starts a different route. It becomes, and with every year, clearly in every century, it becomes more and more different from Castilian, which is normal. However, this march starts uh, at the very, in the early 16th century. So why should we really just throw it out and say it doesn't count? There's another consideration that Ladino literature is supposed to be it's, you know, popular culture, mass literature. How can it be high cultural literature, which is what Al-Muzino is, right? So what is, why should we consider it Ladino literature? Well, so Ladino literature was not always this way. In the 16th century, uh, there were three different registers of Ladino, uh, liter in Ladino literature, three functional styles. And that's what I proposed. Uh, there were three different functional styles two of which uh, disappeared with time and only one survived. This is the style that was later used in rabbinic and then um, in mass literature in the 19th century. Uh, and mm. the reason they disappeared is because there was no longer an audience for them. And so uh, it's just a normal literary process, normal dynamics, which we want to follow and to study, but not just throw it away and say it's none of our business. And also they start, so they believe that we should start in the 1730, and then it immediately becomes the golden age of Latino literature. Now, why is that? Well, because someone said that in the early 20th century, but uh, <laughs> literature does not start with its golden age, right? And also, who says it's right. golden? I think that the 19th century is the golden age because that's when we have both secular and religious literature and we have lots of different genres and a huge output. Uh, and we don't see that in the 18th century. So as you see, I really was very motivated to say what I thought about Latino literature and I felt the need to really, uh, so to speak, move its border. Because it really starts, because right. the community was actually important. It was produced, this corpus of text was produced by one speech community in one territory, in a language which it considers to be the same, even in the 20th century. And let's say Yiddish literature, 
uh, it starts uh, in the 13th century and is produced in different territories and it went through a very complex development and nobody questions it. Nobody says, okay, it only started in the 19th century. So that is why Almusnino right. was not included. And it was not just Almusnino. There were two more authors who wrote in the same literary style or register. And there were different other texts, which are not included either. So the question is really one of periodization and in some ways these subjective decisions to make the period later that have Exactly. And exactly right. And that is why periodization, once you start two centuries early, you certainly need a new periodization. And of course, one can, you know, periodization can be based on lots of different criteria. And I suggest Palladino literature, which as I said before, is really mainly didactic, I suggest a different approach. I believe that one can, it's um, useful to talk about three educational projects. The first project, uh, uh, the first project, uh, uh, the goal of the first project was to introduce the accent versos uh, to normative Judaism. So there were many people who were forcefully or sometimes almost voluntarily uh, converted to Christianity. And some of them remained in Europe. And they, uh, we call them actually crypto Jews because in their own way, they observed, they considered themselves Jews and did something, if only not working on Shabbat. And these people, mm. while they were in Europe, of course they did not know Hebrew. And then they decided to go to the Ottoman Empire where they returned, as they say, or actually embraced Judaism, because many of them had never been Jews, um, technically speaking. And these people did not know Hebrew. So the idea was to teach them normative Judaism, but in language that they didn't, language that they did understand. But since um, no Latin characters were not used, uh, it had to be done in Hebrew script. And mm. besides, what made this, this audience um, different is that those people are mainly really educated people. Many of them graduated from European universities, but they did not know much or anything about Judaism. So that's a unique period in Jewish history because this is this period when one could be called an educated Jew and yet not know Hebrew. So they were educated people, but not educated as Jews. So that was the purpose of the first educational project. But once uh, mass immigration and conversion immigration came to an end, uh, this, uh, this project uh, lost its relevance. In the 18th century, the rabbis decided that um, in a wake of the Sabbatean crisis, when uh, Shabtai Tzvi, um, a Sephardic Jew from Izmir, proclaimed himself in 1666, he proclaimed himself the Messiah. And that, and he had a lot of followers. So that certainly, turned to, um, certainly led to a crisis. And though not directly, but the project of 18th century Sephardic Jews was to teach uh, the masses, the, they call them the ignorant masses, uh, which includes both men and women and people of all ages to teach them Judaism in a language that they understood because, of course, they didn't know Hebrew. And the 19th century uh, is, in the 19th century, we see the third educational um, project, but it overlapped. 
with the second one. That's why I prefer to talk about different educational projects rather than, <coughs> excuse me, about uh, time periods because it starts in the mid 19th century. Uh, and you know, the name of this project is, is Westernization. That is to say, uh, European style education as the universal remedy. So they overlapped with the uh, rabbinic project, although, of course, the uh, secular literature took over. I find it a useful analytic tool, but certainly it's not the only one. And because we talk right. about different educational projects, we have to talk, we talk about the audiences. So to answer your question, yes, because each project has its, had its own target audience. Um, great. So, so I'll move us back to the specific character that sort of guides your study in this book. Who was Moses Almas Nino? And you know, what do we know about him? What don't we know about him? Well, in a strange way, we don't know much about him. So Moses Almas Nino was a rabbi. We're not sure about uh, his um, the date of his birth and the date of his death. But we believe that he was born in 1518 in Salonika and died probably in 1580, probably in Istanbul. And we don't know why he died or where he's buried. Uh, we know a little bit about his family. What's important is that his parents uh, came from uh, from Castile, from Aragon, where his grandparents were very much involved in um, helping uh, conversos to go to really to return to Judaism. And um, he was a very educated person. He knew many languages. Clearly, he knew a few European languages. And of course, he knew Greek, Latin, surely Italian. Uh, most likely, he also knew Arabic. He knew some Turkish, I mean, some vernacular Turkish, so he could speak a little bit. <coughs> Excuse me, I need a sip of water. So he also was a leader, one of the leaders of Salonican community, Salonica community. And he was sent, or famously sent, to Istanbul to deal with the tax, tax problem that uh, Salonican Jews had to face. He was highly uh, respected. Um, he preached in several synagogues in his city. And what is probably more relevant. He was close, very close with many ex-conversos who just came through Europe, but they mainly came from Portugal. He was the rabbi of this uh, new Portuguese synagogue, which was founded by Dona Gracia Nasi. This, uh, this is a very famous woman. Um, she was also from Portugal, and she was very rich, and the Sultan uh, Suleiman helped her get to the Ottoman Empire from Italy, where she was persecuted uh, by Inquisition. And so uh, she made a huge contribution, I mean, financial contribution to the education of the conversos, of the ex-conversos. And her brother, uh, Joseph Nassi, uh, he became uh, the Prince Salim's um, uh, he was his courtier or sometimes advisor. And when Selim became uh, Sultan Selim II, he continued, uh, he still had close relations with Joseph Nasi. 
And Al-Muznini knew Nasi personally. We could probably say that they were friends. And so this is how uh, Al-Muznini met many uh, rich, educated conversos, ex-conversos, most of whom live in Istanbul. We know that he traveled to Istanbul several times, and he met many people, and he knew very well what was going on well, uh, what was going on in the court, of course, in the part that uh, concerned uh, Ottoman Jews. So there were a few Jews close to the uh, close to the court, and so they were an important source of information for him. As for his work, it was known and was highly respected uh, both in Europe and in the Ottoman Empire, which doesn't mean actually that it was known really known in the Ottoman Empire, except for one text, the Regimiento de la Vida, the Regiment of Living, the Regiment of Living, which is um, a didactic treatise, which he wrote uh, presumably at his nephew's request, but it was meant for all young people. And it was written in Ladino and had a Ladino Hebrew glossary, which is quite unusual. It was uh, edit, it was published in Amsterdam in um, 1729. In, it was uh, rearranged, adapted, and it was printed in Latin characters. And his other, uh, his other treatise, uh, the um, treatise on the dreams, on, on dreams, was also reprinted. Uh, was also published in Amsterdam, and he was considered a highly important scholar. As for his other very well-known work, uh, which I will call here the Chronicle, La Cronica de los Reyes Otomanos, which is not his own title. It was given to it by uh, Pilar Romeo, who published it. So we'll just call it La Cronica or the Chronicle. It was published, um, well, in a very... Uh, so it appeared in the... It appeared in the 17th century in Madrid, but it was not only printed in Latin characters, but it was completely rearranged. Uh, the parts of this book were changed, uh, changed places, and one of them, the most Jewish one, was just deleted and wouldn't have been interested, interesting for the audience. So these sources, were, these texts were known, and then the Chronicle was used in the 19th century uh, as a source on the history, on, the, on Ottoman history. And then we see mentions of his name in the 19th and early 20th century. But really, Ottoman Jews didn't really know his work. Although probably his Hebrew work was better known, but it was known uh, by rabbis. But his name, we hear every time, every period, we hear his name from um, important scholars or authors who have to say something about him. So even though his name is mentioned in all of these important works, you know, over the following centuries, as you've mentioned, he hasn't received really any scholarly attention in the modern period. Is that case just, again, bringing us back to this question of periodization, that he isn't considered part of this, you know, Ladino corpus, or is there something else to it? Well, it's the Spanish scholars who don't consider him part of the corpus. It's something else. And this is relevant to what we've been talking about. He wrote in this high register, 
he wrote for an educated audience. And this audience disappeared with the end of the uh, ex-converso immigration. And so later, uh, to read his books, one needed to be really educated, uh, know, be familiar with philosophy, be familiar with sort of what was called sciences then. And this was not the kind of popular knowledge that one can expect. So he was simply <clears throat> not, it was too difficult. And uh, uh, so <coughs> Hooley, uh, the person who is considered the greatest author of, uh, uh, the greatest Sephardi author, and I have to disagree with that, although he was certainly very important, he started the famous Bible commentary, popular Bible commentary, Miamluez, the first volume of which came out in uh, 1730, which is why my, my Spanish colleagues consider this the beginning of Latino literature. This was a Bible, a Bible commentary for the masses. But he, in the introduction, he had to go to great length to explain uh, and apologize why he was not using Almuznino's work. He had to explain that it was not readable. So, of course, scholars knew his work, but he had, and of course, we're only talking about his regimen of living because the Chronicle was never published. Uh, you know, secular literature was not published, it was not printed in the 16th century. It survived the manuscript. I see. Okay, so this discussion of then audience actually segues into my next question nicely, which is that you use Almost Nino's writings in this sort of fascinating and unusual way that you mentioned at the beginning, um, which is to get a sense of, you know, who his readers were, his intended and his unintended readers. I'm curious, during your research process, you know, what sort of questions did you ask yourself in order to get to the bottom of these questions? Um, what, you know, what were your methods when approaching his work? Well, my favorite method is close reading. But of course, sometimes I need to do other things. And in this case, because it was clearly an educational project, I needed to ask historical questions. Why did this literature emerge? Why did these three Sephardi authors produce those texts? Why there was Ladino literature in two other registers produced in the 16th century? Uh, those were translations of the Bible and different instructions. Uh, written for Sephardim who did not know Hebrew, I had to ask, why was there this need? Why was there, clearly there were more than one audience. Why? Who were these people who needed these books? And then more importantly, because it's more, it seems to be more mysterious, why did this audience disappear? So these are purely historical questions, but also looking at the text themselves, themselves, of course, I looked for lots of different things. I wanted to know what Almuznino read, and it's generally believed that he read European literature, which was still available to those who knew uh, the Latin alphabet. But I was able to figure out which books he probably read, going to the quotations and uh, rather allusions and the word usage. Um, and also, um, I looked at what kind of knowledge he expected from his readers and what he wanted them to believe. And I must say that different different texts had different messages. Not like he always wanted, you know, the hammer the same thing. No, he wasn't like that. 
And of course, I also looked for, I want to explain why he used certain genres and not other genres and what um, models he was using. So those were questions about him, but he was a member of his own class. So this was a question about his class and also about his readership. And once I've been able to explain it to myself, then it became clearer, much clearer what happened later. And that is why it's so important to, I mean, I don't even understand how one cannot study this period of Latino literature. And so what then are some of these, you know, some of these genres and models that he produced? I mean, um, you mentioned the earlier treatises, but what sorts of written material did he produce that then you focus specifically on in this book? Yeah, well, that's, of course, also a very important question. I would say that he worked in three different genres, though he was never very consistent anywhere. So the first genre, which may be less exciting for the modern reader, but, of course, it's important, he created the genre of the uh, of um, the Ladino scholarly Ladino epistle. It sounds strange because there was in the... Before the expulsion, there were those scholarly epistles written by Jewish scholars, but of course only in Hebrew, because that was the language of high culture and the language of scholarship. But his readers did not know Hebrew. If we, then he knew, he was very familiar with the, um, with the uh, epistolography of, uh, of, of Spanish Christians. Now, but they were talking to a Christian audience. And there were also letters written by um, Iberian Jews uh, in the vernacular addressed to uh, important uh, figures, uh, politicians and monarchs, uh, Christian monarchs monarchs uh, in the peninsula. So they were written by, they were written in the vernacular, but they, and some of them were scholarly epistles, but he also went answer to a question, and they they uh, they were supposed to be answered. So that was an exchange. What what Almudena had to do was to create uh, to write about scholarly subjects to those people who were educated, including these subjects, but they did not know Hebrew. So it had to be he had to use a high register uh, because he could not write in the everyday style, it would have been uh, totally inappropriate. But it's even more important how this genre emerged. These people who came from Europe asking questions. Sometimes they were related to Judaism and to spiritual matters. They two Ladino treatises, which unfortunately have not survived, and he mentions them. One was a letter on the soul, and the other, the letter on the, resur- the, resur- the resurrection of the dead. So he even talked about these theological issues in the vernacular, something unheard of until then. He was really, so he did something totally new. He wrote, and some of these epistles were short, and they dealt, they were just technical instructions, like to use um, a silver silver um, clock that he constructed, or how to use the astrolabe, but of course it also it, he would also go into the uh, into Greek uh, in the works of Greek scholars uh, and 
would provide a lot of information, which required the addressee to know what he was talking about. And he used, of course, bookish words. And because he, some of these words, um, he had to, to use them, he had to borrow them from Castilian literature. And his most famous uh, treatise, which I mentioned before, The Regimen of Living and Regimiento de la Vida, as I said, was written at the request of his um, nephew. And the, his other treatise, uh, the treatise on dreams, was written on the request of uh, Don Joseph Nassi, whom I mentioned before. So he asked Al-Muznin what he thought about dreams. They had conversation. And so Al-Muznin decided to write a treatise on the subject. He, uh, I believe he wrote six um, treatises, but only four of them survived. That was the first genre. And it really, uh, it's totally different. And I think this is the genre where he really created this um, high style or register of uh, Ladino, Ladino language. So, uh, do you want me to tell to talk about the other the other genres as well? Yes, I was I was going to ask actually. So what what were what are the other two styles? Yeah, the, well, the other two styles. So there are styles and there are genres. So there are this a second okay, so style. Yeah, I'm glad to talk about both. So there was okay. a style. Or- and are, just to clarify, styles are subsets of genres. No, styles Is that are correct? no, they're language styles. They're register language. Got it. Language. Oh, right. The register. Yes. Okay. And I so Thanks for we're talking, sure. And we're talking about uh, the high register of Ladino, of the Ladino language. A second, the second one was what some scholars called call Ladino cock or just Ladino. That is a very strange register of functional style. Uh, it was born, actually only existed in one form. When the Bible was translated into Ladino, it was considered important to translate it literally word by word, and even keeping all the syntactic cocks. So they it didn't use any Hebrew words, but was really unreadable. For those people who did not know Hebrew, it was really unreadable. But this style existed and was believed that was the only way to translate the Bible because you can't translate it in the everyday vernacular. That's what they thought in the 16th century. So, so one was supposed to read this and assume that one is familiar with the Bible, that one studies the Bible this way, even though I can't, I can't understand how anybody would make sense of this. And this functional style disappeared in the 18th century when the rabbis decided to write uh, in a language that people would really understand, which was revolutionary. And the third style was, or register, um, was closer to the spoken Ladino. That was the language of the instructions given to, let's say, to women or to men, what they were supposed to do, uh, you know, religious instructions, I mean, technical instructions. How do you prepare for Shabbat? Uh, what do you do? What do you put on? What do you do before the prayer or after the prayer? And it used many Hebrew words and also syntactic cocks uh, from from um, Hebrew. And we do have a little some idea of the spoken language actually because there are these testimonies in the response. Now, in Sephardi culture, Sephardi tradition, responses, the responsive word answers. Uh, uh, to the questions asked uh, by people, different people, they asked the rabbis 
for their for legal decisions and legal answers. And they included testimonies of different people. And um, usually, these um, in the Sephardic tradition, they were not translated into Hebrew. Of course, they were edited. But still, it does give us an idea of what was the language of the everyday communication. So now let's go back. So now we see different uh, different styles or functional styles or registers. That's language. Now we'll go back to our literary genres. So the genres were, so Al-Muznin wrote, produced three literary genres. Uh, the first one was the, uh, the epistles, uh, the scholarly epistles, for the first time uh, written in the vernacular. The second genre was um, second genre was the chronicle. The chronicle, of course, yes, yes. So the chronicle. Well, he calls them chronicles, but we can't really. Well, so this is it gets more complicated. So when I was Nino, as I said, he was sent as a member of the delegation from Salonika to deal with the tax problems in Istanbul. And that was because he had these close connections with um, Joseph Nasi, who in turn was very close uh, with the prince, uh, Prince Selim. That was right before Suleiman's death in uh, 1566. When Suleiman died, then uh, Selim said, uh, Joseph Nasi said that Selim was going to settle, settle all their problems. But the first there was the funeral, then there was coronation, there was always something why the new sultan was busy. And then, uh, you know, this um, Ottoman court known for its bureaucracy and corruption. So it took a lot of time. And all this time, starting uh, in June '66. Uh, and uh, it continued through September 67. Al wrote, actually, he returned to Salonika even in, in January of 68. But this time, before November, which was the time of Suleiman's um, funeral, uh, November 1566, and April and September 1567, Al Muznino produced his really famous chronicle. And this chronicle consists of four completely different texts. And um, the first chronicle was written, uh, it was about the, uh, the death and described the death and the funeral of Suleiman the Magnificent. Well, he, yes, it is a little, but what is very interesting, what's most important, why did Al-Muslim write it? What was the idea? Who, so he tells us clearly that he was asked by some friends who were close to the court to write this chronicle. And that then we hear from time to time, he mentions that he got his information from very competent sources, very reliable sources. Obviously, most of the time it was Joseph Nasi, also maybe the doctors, uh, Jewish physicians who he also knew. And he talks about the um, death, which he never witnessed, of course, and he only saw part of the funeral. And why this text was so important for those who commissioned him? Because they had this idea that they needed to the general idea was to was to recreate the royal alliance that they had 
or with uh, in the Iberian Peninsula when the Jews had direct direct connection to the to the royalty to the kings and they paid uh, taxes or whatever they paid directly. There was direct connection. There was no intermediaries, and that uh, made their life well easier and gave them more influence. And that's what they wanted to create in the Ottoman Empire. And so they believed that it was important to educate those ex-conversos who were educated and mobile, socially mobile people. You know, they went from, you know, came all the way from Europe. And many of them were well, usually they were well off. They had connections outside the Ottoman Empire, which was useful for trade. So uh, Joseph Nasi and his circle this believed that it would, would be important to teach people that uh, Ottoman Empire is such a wonderful place for them to be, and all they, that they should really they should really collaborate. That they should uh, work with the authorities to create uh, to strengthen this alliance and serve the Ottoman Empire, which would secure to the Jewish community a comfortable position. And that is why, of course, the text that then was created it was a chronicle. But it was very much it was very much influenced for what they told them, told him. And so you can't call it an accurate discovery description, although it's very interesting to read. It's actually fun reading. It's really nice. And but it's also important for historians. And one has to be very careful with the facts we find in his book. So that was the first chronicle. Yes, it was. But I think the first chronicle was less propagandistic than the second one. And I actually call I must name the first Jewish political author in the Ottoman Empire. So the second, the second chronicle, uh, so the first chronicle was written in 48 hours. So I suppose he received all the necessary information. And so he was ready to write. They did the research for him. Yes, right. I suppose they, they they gave you okay. This is what you need to write. This is what you put in need to put in here. And the second chronicle was written in April um, in April 1567 during the Bayram holidays, where the court so uh, but they, they couldn't de- deal with the court at all because of the holidays. So he had time to write. And of course, I was Nino always said that he was too busy doing other more important things. So he found time to write, and it, he had a few weeks then, and he wrote a chronicle which was twice longer than the first one, and that was really propagandistic. So this um, this chronicle is the history of uh, of Suleiman's rule. He talks about all his wars and victories, all the victories. He talks about his viziers, the ministers, uh, about the judges. The ulema, uh, the clergy, and uh, he talked about Suleiman's um, Suleiman's uh, pat- architectural patronage, which was very important for Suleiman himself. And he actually set an example uh, for his family and uh, courtiers to start um, patronizing architectural um, construction in, in uh, Istanbul and outside. And Al-Musnino has a whole section, actually very interesting, about these three constructions built by Suleiman's architect Sinan, a very famous architect. And he talks about every one of these three constructions very competently. And it's interesting that today we appreciate the importance of the, this architectural work. 
But it's, it, it really amazes me that Al-Musninu, he came from Salonika, which could not boast any you know, such buildings. He was able to appreciate the importance of this building. And of course, he also uses them for propagandistic purposes. See that uh, Suleiman really wanted to help his people. So they built the bridge, but he was unhappy because he thought the bridge was not strong enough, and he made them redo it so that the future uh, generations would be would be safe using this bridge. It's interesting, this combination of real admiration, but also propaganda. He talks about, but the most important, um, in terms of the message, the most important part of this, um, actually the colophon of this um, book, uh, Al-Muznir talks at length about how Suleiman murdered, or not with his own hands, of course, his sons. That was not unusual. Well, until then, fratricide actually was legitimate. So when someone became uh, the sultan, he would kill his other or his brothers to avoid a competition. It was sort of a laudable thing to do. And Suleiman actually killed his children, except for one. And it was, you know, it's blood-curling to read all these things. Horribly cruel. And of course, Europeans were totally disgusted. And you would think that the Jews would not appreciate someone, someone killing his children. But it's quite amazing that Al-Musnino says, yes, he killed them. He could have saved them, but he didn't. And the reason he didn't, his only, his main goal was providing stability and security for his, for his, for the empire. And so we are very happy that we have such a wonderful sultan, or had this wonderful sultan, who murdered his own flesh, flesh and blood, so that we would have a wonderful, safe, and secure life. And clearly, we need to be grateful for that. Yes, it's, it's really horrible. And it's totally counterintuitive. Yes. It's, it's just really awful. That's not what, you know, Jewish father is supposed to applaud, right? But that's, that's really scary. And of course, it's also interesting that stability and security are valued more than any kind of freedom, which yeah, sounds familiar. So, um, and so Al-Muznino says, we have to be grateful. We need to work together. We need to help. We need to support this, these wonderful sultans so that our community uh, will flourish and thrive and we will be happy uh, in this empire. And these chronicles, they use, they include, well, the first one is more or less a, more or less chronicle. The second one uses different genre features. The part about the um, architecture, that's totally typical, uh, you know, this uh, travelogue thing. So he describes every monument and the anecdotes related to it. Every anecdote, of course, illustrates Suleiman's wisdom and his love for his people. Other, uh, there are other parts that make one think, and we can't help thinking about the Hebrew, uh, Hebrew chronicles of Ottoman kings written by his contemporaries. But those chronicles, they, they interpret uh, history only in biblical terms. So this, this sultan is good, because he helps, uh, you know, he brings closer the 
the uh, Messiah or makes the redemption happen very, very soon in our own lifetime. But Al-Muznino is not interested in that. That is really, I can't say it's a scientific history, but it's certainly a secular history, whether we agree with it or not. So that, that's the second chronicle. Now, the fourth chronicle, which I did not examine because it's really very different and it's not part of what I was interested in, it describes day by day the uh, life, the, the existence of the Sephard, of this Salonican delegation in Istanbul, day by day, how they went to the court and what they were told and what they did and whom they met. It's very interesting. It's a very interesting source on Sephardi and actually on Ottoman history, but that was not part of what I was interested in. So I sometimes quoted it, cited it, but I didn't really analyze it. And just because we're running a little bit low on time, I wonder if we could um, if we could move on to discussing, you know, how Amos Nino's work sort of was can was continued to be reinterpreted and have different audiences and different receptions over the following centuries. So you talk about, you know, the first period of Ladino literature declining. What causes Ladino literature to reemerge and how is Almas Nino, you know, how does he fit into the next period of Ladino literature? Yes, I realize I have to be quick. So there are there are two very important things. There are two important things, really important, that I need to explain here. So, what happened at the end of the 16th, at the turn of the 17th century? There's nothing, not a single book, like a book from the 17th century reached us. Why? What happened? And usually, until now, even you know, people said, well, you know, economic decline. But that's not an explanation because at the in the end of the 19th century, which I call the golden age of Latino literature, you know, the, the empire was nearing a collapse. So, you know, it just doesn't explain it. What I think really explains it is the end of the converso immigration. Uh, and this happened because many European countries began to, uh, began to allow Jews, uh, and that was because they were interested in their uh, trade connections. So uh, Jews found homes in Amsterdam, in Italian cities, and they had no reason to go to the Ottoman Empire with its slow economy. So that was the end of the immigration. And since that was the end, there was no more need. Um, the last book, meant for an Educated Audience, uh, it was written, uh, was published in 1601. That was a medical treatise. So there was no need to educate or re-educate these educated people. Uh, and, of course, there were still you know, regular people who needed to be educated. But there were texts already published in the 16th century. There were quite a bit of them. And then quite a few of them. And many of them were reprinted in Venice. So they were available. And Venice, you know, the connection between Salonika and Venice and Istanbul and Venice very close. So getting thing, books from there was never a problem. They always traveled back and forth. And it's also true that the economic decline at the early, in the early 17th century and particular, it was particularly important for Salonika. And so many people immigrated from Salonika and they went to different parts of the Ottoman Empire. So there was not much money for printing. 
and the Jewish philanthropy did not focus on um, book printing anymore. And even the rabbis began to be taxed, which never happened before, because you know the authorities wanted to get money. So for the for this very long period, there's nothing printed in Latino. And I think it's pretty this hiatus is to me now it's pretty clear. So then the question is why it reemerged in the 18th century. And I talked about it before um, that this happened uh, in relation, but not in direct connection with the Sabbatian crisis when the uh, rabbis, um, Matthias Lemon called them nicely vernacular rabbis because they wrote in the vernacular. They decided to educate the masses, the ignorant masses, and they published a considerable number of really important books in the 18th century. They continued in the 19th century, though with less, um, less success. Um, and then these audiences, they needed, uh, as I show, it wasn't just this religious literature. Now, clearly, some European novels were also accessible, but only in manuscripts. And of course, they didn't survive. We only, I think there's just one fragment because they were not saved in the, Geni in the Genesis, of course. And in the, but when the, uh, in the 19th century, with, with Westernization and the introduction of uh, the Alliance Francaise-Israelite uh, Universelle, uh, a French philanthropic organization which started, which built a huge, a big number of schools in the East and educated a significant number of uh, students who also taught, who taught French, not formally taught, not, never taught, Latin, taught Latino, which was mainly banned in most schools. They taught them French. And uh, Westernization, uh, you would think that Almuznino would not be relevant anymore because that was the, uh, had nothing to do with that. But actually, what happens is that Almuznino became important for the intellectuals again for a very strange reason. They wanted to, when Salonika went through all its its hardships in the 20th century in particular, although it started a little early, they wanted to prove that uh, Sephardic Jews were Europeans. And how do you prove it? Well, because Al-Muznino, they believed, wrote in pure Castilian. But unlike the modern scholars, he, they considered they, it was the same language. They continued speaking it, but they thought that they sort of you know, corrupted the language. And he wrote, it, and they connected him. Not, so uh, usually people would say that Almuznino, you know, he was, uh, he had a strong connection to those uh, Hebrew authors like Ibn Gabarol or Maimonides, but that was about his Hebrew works. As for his Ladino works, somehow they were related to the, to the Spanish Renaissance which, when there were no Jews, as a matter of fact. And so this, made Sephardic Jews Europeans. And they did not, and that is because Sephardim, like I am today, they felt bad because they were not considered real Jews, quote unquote, and they were uh, considered those ignorant Orientals who didn't know anything, and they wanted to, uh, you know, reclaim their past glory. Um, and uh, so they didn't really, they did not really know his work, 
but she knew it existed, and some scholars did look at it, but really very few people saw it. As for the interpretation, or rather misinterpretation, of Almozninov's work, I think the best example is his um, so his travelogue, which is a third third part of his, of the Chronica. This is the book that I translated. This book has been until it was considered a standard travelogue. It was a travelogue of Istanbul. It was considered to be he was described as very uh, accurate and careful, uh, very uh, very um, attentive observer, and that his that his descriptions were very accurate and careful, and also his account was called picturesque. And I looked at this text and I thought, what a strange text. It consists of 26 little pieces, each of which starts by saying uh, something in Istanbul exists in two extremes. Let's say it's either too hot or too cold. It's either too expensive or too cheap. cheap. Either everybody is sick or nobody has a headache in the whole city. And I thought, how could one take it seriously as a travelogue? And scholars used it as a source. And I couldn't believe it. I was just surprised. And I'm ashamed to say that it took me a few years to figure it out. I should have guessed it earlier. What it really is, is the extension of his Regimento de la Vida, the Regiment of Living, which is totally based on Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics. So what this is, he uh, he applies the uh, the idea of um, to ex- extremes without a mean to what it cannot be applied. So to climate, uh, to food, to to economy, to trade, lots of things for which it it makes no sense because it's not a moral. It, it doesn't. These extremes have nothing to do with moral decisions. Now, when he talks about friendship or generosity, it all comes. It's really quotes from um, Aristotle, uh, one can learn from that, is to decide uh, decide that one needs to become more generous and uh, being, uh, you know, like Aristotle, he says, we need to form habits. And if we form moral habits, we'll become uh, moral people. But what does it mean when he says that the coins in Istanbul are either very good or very bad? It makes no sense. It's not even established as a fact. It's not true. Or he will say, when there's a lot of food, it's very cheap. It's very expensive because everyone wants to eat it. And when it's very little, it's very, it's very little, it's very cheap. Makes no sense at all. Why didn't anybody get surprised? I, get surprised. I was very surprised. And so I was very happy when I was able to figure out that it starts with Aristotelian extremes. But of course, the illusions uh, and almost quotations from other scholars such as Hippocrates, Maimonides, Ibn Sina, Galen, and medieval medieval health, uh, health treatises. So he's extremely interesting, very interesting author. And um, I just uh, I hope that someone uh, that someone translates the whole book. It's really fun reading, and I can't say this, but I love Latino literature. But uh, in good faith, I can say it's all fun reading. But this book is really fun reading. This has been this has been such a fascinating discussion, and it's such an understudied subject. It's wonderful to hear about it. Um, but before we let you go, I want to hear um, about 
what you're working on next, you know, if not this massive translation, uh, what your next project is. Well, actually, I'm two thirds into my new project, and don't let me don't let me talk about it too much because we really run out of time. But I'm working on something completely different. That's a purely historical um, project. So I'm working on the blood libel in Rhodes in 1840. It was completely overshadowed by the well-known, infamous uh, blood libel in Damascus in 1840. And people just assume it's the same thing, and that's even symptomatic. I don't think there's any connection between the two. It's completely different. And I found a significant number of very interesting sources. And there are Ladino sources, which have not been seen before. And these sources, I mean, the songs, they really tell us a different story. And they... um, they, I found important facts that even Ottoman sources did not uh, have. So I very much look forward to finishing it. And of course, it also it will also include the translation of these uh, Ladino sources. So I'm very excited. About that sounds, yeah, that sounds really interesting. That's something that I don't know anything about. So I look forward to having you back on the show once you finish that project. <laughs> well, I hope that's soon. Yeah, me too. Um, Gives me a deadline anyway. <laughs> there you go. Olga, it's been it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for, for sharing your book and your time with us. This has been great. Well, thank you so much, Robin. I'm always happy to talk about Latino literature, so I was very happy that I had this wonderful opportunity. Thank you. That was Olga Borovaya talking about her book, The Beginnings of Ladino Literature, Moses Almos Nino and His Readers, which is available now through Indiana University Press. This has been New Books in Jewish Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. Thanks for listening. up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.